to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Now, undoubtedly, in uh, chapter 11 especially, Isaiah is looking forward to the messianic age often described by the prophet Isaiah and introduced in that phrase that comes four times in these two chapters, in that day. Chapter 11, verse 10, um, for example. In that day, the root of Jesse, that is a name for the Messiah, will stand as a banner for the peoples. Verse 11, in that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant. And in chapter 12, verse 1, in that day, you will say. And in verse 4, in that day, you will say. Now, that is a phrase which refers so often to the messianic Age. And this, of course, is God's ultimate answer to all Israel's need. When the branch appears, when the stem of David, the root out of David's soil, as it were, appears, he is the answer to all the great need of God's people. Now, I've pointed out several times when we've been studying Isaiah that the age of the Messiah can sometimes refer to his first coming. That is, to the first coming of Christ, to which, for example, chapter 7 points, and chapter 9, where it tells us that a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and it predicts, as we have been reminded at Christmas time, the coming, the birth, the arrival of the Messiah in the world. Sometimes that advent of the Messiah speaks of his second advent, that is, his coming in power and great glory, not in weakness and humiliation, but in power and glory to consummate the work of deliverance and salvation. And there is uh, something of that here in this passage this evening. Sometimes it speaks of a merging of these two events to describe the period between the first advent and the second advent. The messianic age, in other words, is the age between the advents, sometimes called by Paul the last days. For example, here, the Messiah is described in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 11, the passage we looked at briefly last week at the end, as the Spirit-filled righteous judge. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, that is, on him who comes out of the line of David. We saw how the Gospels trace this, that Jesus is traced back to David and through David's line. And then the very first event of our Lord's public ministry is that the Spirit of God comes down upon him like a dove. Who is this Spirit? 
Well, Isaiah goes on to tell us and to describe him as the spirit-filled, righteous judge and deliverer. He comes in the messianic armor in order to deliver his people. But then in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 11 of Isaiah, we are taken right on to the consummation of the messianic age at the second coming of Christ when the results of his redeeming work will be seen not only in the church by the gathering in of his people, but in the whole of the created order. Now here in the most wonderful sense, Isaiah has a vision which doesn't just belong to his present time. We have seen how Isaiah addresses his present times. Nor does it just belong to the future, when the people of God will be brought back from exile, nor to the arrival of the Messiah, of which he speaks in chapter 7 and 9, a virgin shall conceive and so on. But here his vision penetrates right beyond all of history to the day of the return of the Lord Jesus and the establishing of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. Because what Christ has done and what God has done in Christ does not just affect his people and the gathering of them in as a redeemed company. It affects the creation itself. And this is what Isaiah is speaking about in verses 6 to 9, in this amazing reconciliation. Now, we are accustomed to think of the reconciliation of men and women to God by His grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what He was accomplishing on the cross. But do you see that he was not only undoing the alienation that kept man from God, he is also undoing the curse that lay upon the whole created order. Now that's a fascinating thing. You will remember that in Genesis 3, it was not just man and the serpent who were cursed. The very ground was cursed by God. That is, the creation was affected by the fall. Now, you don't need to look any further than the saying we have about nature today. What do we say about nature when we look at it? When you see some of these films, fascinating things of, of uh, African game parks, for example, and you see the hideous cruelty that there is in the natural order. It has fallen, you see, and we say, nature red in tooth and claw, and it is. But here is this amazing picture at the end of the age, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, when Isaiah says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat. This extraordinary reference to the cobra, the serpent, who was the very essence of everything that was brought under the curse. And yet the infant will play near the hole of the cobra. Now that's an astonishing thing. Any parent who saw their child playing near the 
hole where a cobra was to be found. They would have screamed and snatched them away. But here, the created order is reconciled within itself. Do you see? That's the new heaven and the new earth. And it's a glorious thing. Revelation 21 speaks about it. The trees of the field will clap their hands. It's something we don't think much about because we don't have the mental capacity to think about it. I tell you, somebody who does think about it a great deal, and that's C.S. Lewis. Do you know C.S. Lewis's books? He has got a marvelous book called Perilandra. Have you ever heard of Perilandra? The odd shaking of the head in agreement. Perilandra explores this whole world of the reconciliation of the creation, you know. There's one particular figure who's wanting to cross a lake. It seems the world of fantasy, but it's really creation reconciled. And he just gets onto a dolphin and goes flashing across the lake. There is <coughs> something of the reconciliation that takes place here within nature. It's a very beautiful thing, and of course it's a New Testament uh, doctrine which Paul teaches us. You will remember in Romans chapter 8, where he is exploring the amazing dimensions of God's redeeming grace, and he tells us in Romans 8, and um, I'm coming to it, just hold on, um, verse 19. Romans 8:19 The creation not the creature but the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed for the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Can you catch that amazing picture? Here is not only we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body, but the creation groans, waiting for the day of redemption. That is, there is a minor note that runs all the way through creation. The poets get at it. You think I've had a bit of a dose of, uh, what have I had? Well, I don't know. The poets do get to it, though. Do you notice? They speak of the melancholy murmur of the waves, the sighing of the wind. There is a minor note that runs through creation, and it is the whole created order groaning and waiting for the day of the Lord Jesus, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that's an amazing and glorious thing. And that's what uh, Isaiah is speaking of. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a whole dimension there that we greatly need to think our way through. 
Scripture speaks of uh, things that sometimes our minds are scarcely able to grasp. But then Isaiah takes us on into another reconciliation. Having reconciled creation uh, through his work of redeeming grace, he now turns to speak to us about the reconciliation of the Gentiles to God, and then in verse 11, the reclaiming of the remnant of his own people, the Jews, to himself. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the nations, the Gentiles. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Now, here are these nations, you see, to be brought to God. They are going to rally to him. The Gentiles who were strangers, hostile to God, they are going to be drawn to him. Do you remember the Lord Jesus? I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. Now they are going to be drawn to him. In that day, verse 11, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. Now, people are confused, and, and I am uh, uncertain about what uh, that reference is to in verse 11. It's the Lord stretching out his hand a second time to reclaim the, the remnant that is left of his people from this dispersed area all over the ancient world. Some people think this is the Lord reaching out his hand a second time to do what he did in the Exodus, that is, to bring his people back from Babylon. I'm not at all sure that that's true, because when the Lord did that, he didn't stretch out his hand all over these many places. He went to Babylon and brought them back from one place. Some people see in it a reference to the gathering in of his people. This is how Calvin interprets it, from all over the earth. And he goes on to describe how God is going to do that in, um, chapter, in verse 12. But it may be that it refers to various different things. It may be it is to his own people, to the physical, national, ethnic people of the Jewish nation. And it may be the ingathering of a great company of the Jews of which Paul speaks in Romans 11. It may be that he is speaking more spiritually of all his people coming from the four corners of the earth, as he says in verse 12. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. But however he is speaking, he is speaking about the reconciliation of all kinds and conditions of people to himself through the Messiah. This is what the Messiah will do. He will draw all kinds of people to be reconciled to him. And it is God who is going to do it. Do you notice his hand is going to go out and he is going to draw them from all over the four corners of the earth. But you notice in verse 13 there's another reconciliation and it's the reconciliation of God's people to each other. Verse 13, Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's hostility will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile towards 
Ephraim. And that really is just a picture of uh, the disappearance of division, hostility, jealousy, alienation between groups of God's people. And it's a very significant thing, isn't it, to see the progress. Here they are being reconciled to God. Then they are reconciled to one another. Precisely what Paul teaches in Ephesians 2. They are reconciled to God. They are reconciled to one another. And then, verse 14, they can go out and fight the Lord's battles. Now, there's a lesson for God to write into our hearts. Verse 14 they will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab and the Ammonites, traditionally God's enemies. And the Lord will go out and he will do this mighty thing like another exodus as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt, the end of verse 16. He will make a highway for his people. But notice the order. It's immensely important. They are reconciled to God. They are reconciled to one another and then they can go out and fight the Lord's battles and the Lord himself will go before them to be their victorious savior. Now notice the spiritual laws or principles which go through this passage. I just mentioned them to you and then we move on to chapter 12. First spiritual law is that God's purposes are sovereign. Whatever he has planned through all the ages, whatever he has treasured up in his heart to do, however contrary the signs of the times may be, and you look at the signs of the times and see the land blasted, Assyria raised to the ground, Judah blasted to nothing. And yet there is this little shoot that begins to grow out of the stump that people would have despised because God had a sovereign purpose and he fulfilled it. That's the first thing. God's purposes are sovereign. Second principle, all God's purposes focus on the Messiah. All God's purposes focus on Christ. And that's why he is focusing constantly on the branch, the root who has grown up. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. It is all that he does that will produce all that here we are called to worship God for in chapter 12. All God's purposes focus on Christ and all our hopes need to focus on him. Third spiritual law, God's salvation embraces the whole created order as well as his people. Now that means, of course, that we need to recognize that God has a purpose not only for his people but for the whole creation. And that is what should change our thinking about art and music and every other form of artistic expression. 
because God has a purpose one day to bring all of that into the realm of his redeeming grace. God's salvation embraces the creation as well as his people. Fourthly, God's people, if they are to be of use to him, must be in a right relationship with God and with each other. You learn that spiritual principle? If God's people are going to be useful to him in fighting the Lord's battles in this world, they must be in a right relationship with him and in a right relationship with one another. You just look and you'll see. Where the Lord's people are not in a right relationship with one another, they are not going to be of use to him. First, says Jesus, go and put things right with your brother, then come. If God's people are not in a right relationship with him, then that too is a barrier to their usefulness to God. Fifth principle, God's triumphs in the past are the chief encouragement for his people in the present and the future. Look at the end of verse 16 says, there will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. Now, again and again and again, that's how God encourages his people. He points them back to the Exodus, you know. I am the God, he says. Have you ever wondered why God introduces himself like this? I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. I am the God who brought your fathers up out of the Red Sea with a strong hand and a mighty arm. What's God doing? Is he giving them merely a history lesson? Well, of course not. What he is doing is saying, this is the God I am. When you look into the past, this is the God I I am not the great I was. I am the great I am. And this is what I have done signally. He delivered his people from the bondage of Egypt. If he has done that in the past, how differently we ought to view the present and the future. That's what Isaiah is saying. Now when we turn to chapter 12, the prophet is so sure of God's faithfulness in bringing his people back from exile that he not only prophesies it when we come into the beginning of chapter 40, he actually here writes the song of praise and thanksgiving for that occasion which they are to sing. Two centuries were to pass before God's people sang such a song as this, but sing it, they did. Do you remember in Ezra, for example, in chapter 3 of Ezra, let me read you what happened when they came back from exile and they rebuilt the temple when the builders, Ezra 3.10 this is, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, and then you get what they sang to the Lord. You get the same note, of course, after uh, the exodus 
when do you remember in Exodus chapter 15 you get this great song of Moses uh, when they praised the Lord because the horse and his rider they he had cast into the sea it's a very important thing for us to grasp that praise and thanksgiving this spirit not something mechanical though it's a marvelous thing to have an excellent quality of praise this is a spirit that the prophet is speaking about and this spirit of praise and thankfulness is something that is absolutely essential for a robust spiritual life have you thought why not because God needs it like some neurotic tyrant who constantly wants to be flattered we need to praise and worship God because we need it we need the spirit of praise and thankfulness for it's only in this way that our attention is focused on God rather than on ourselves so after the deliverance from Egypt after the exile these people gave themselves to praising and adoring the Lord chiefly of course the reason that they did it was that the mighty acts of God had so deeply moved them they were amazed at the greatness of redeeming grace their hearts were enlarged with a sense of the wonder and the greatness of God previously they had been taken up by the greatness and wonders of men that's what we are greatly taken up with you know generally speaking we are deeply impressed by the wonders of human achievement and rightly so in our day but my dear brothers and sisters we need to get into our hearts this surpassing glory of the wonders of the triumphs of God if they sang after the exodus and after the exile how infinitely more ought we to have a spirit that overflows in worship and thanksgiving and praise for the redemption that leaves Egypt and Babylon and the deliverance from there looking trivial by comparison. And Isaiah teaches them a song of praise and worship. Just look briefly at it as we come to a close. Which clock is right? Ah, we've got a minute. That's fine. Thank you. He begins his worship in verse 1 of chapter 12, do you notice, by focusing on the greatest thing that has happened in our salvation. Do you know what the greatest thing that has happened in our salvation is? What did you say? I would love to have a, a, one of these uh, surveys done, you know. What is the greatest thing that has happened in our salvation? Well, here is the answer. Chapter 12, verse 1. In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Why? Although you were angry with me, 
your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. What is the greatest thing that has happened in our salvation? God's anger has been turned away and he has comforted me. Now the reason that is the greatest thing is that the greatest damage that sin has wrought is that it has drawn down upon the sinner the anger and wrath of God. That's the deepest result of sin. And the greatest triumph of God's grace in Jesus Christ is that his anger has been turned away from me to Jesus. And his judgment has been poured out upon him. No wonder the prophet's heart is filled with praise when he has discovered that. Secondly, you notice he focuses his worship on the refreshment and renewal and cleansing which salvation brings. Verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That's a most glorious promise that God has given like streams in the desert, like water flowing out of the rock, like a spring of water welling up within you to eternal life. Come to me, says Jesus, if any man thirst. I will open a fountain for sin and for all uncleanness. And this is what has happened in the Messiah. He has cleansed us. He has refreshed us. He has overflowed us with the waters of salvation. And we drink deeply from them. The deeper you drink, the greater your praise. That's what Isaiah is telling us. Thirdly, you notice the very significant thing that when Isaiah teaches them to worship, he conjoins together the two great things that are never separated, and that is worship and mission. Notice it in verse 4 of chapter 12. In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on his name. Make known among the Gentiles what he has done, and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. What are the two things that he joins together? Worship and mission, the two great reasons for the church's existence. Worship and mission, for God and for sinners. And fourthly, it ends this song where heaven begins, and that is focusing on the exalted glory of God. Shout aloud, verse 6, and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. Now that's quite like heaven. It's often quite like heaven when you get uh, 
a sense of praise and real worship amongst God's people when you're there. You know, there have been times when in various places people have said to me, that was just like a little taste of heaven come down to earth as our hearts were drawn out to him. And of course it's when we're all taken up with the Holy One of Israel in the midst of you and his greatness because in heaven that is what they perpetually cry. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and glory and might and wealth and dominion and power. And that's the worship that God longs to create and he alone can create it amongst us. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.